Okay, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Brent. If you're new, uh, really glad you're here. We are continuing our series called Summer Seminars, and we've been examining some foundational biblical truths about the Christian life. And today, we're talking about a unique topic that I don't think is well understood by many of us, and it's certainly misunderstood in our culture. Let me start with a question. What are our bodies for? Why do we have bodies? Why do we inhabit, or why do, why do I inhabit this complex network of organs and vessels and neurons and muscles and bones that can do amazing things but also gets tired and gets sick and eventually decays and dies? Why are we embodied? Who are we really? Maybe another way to ask the question is, am I my body or am I something else? Are we merely souls who temporarily live in a body and then are released to some spiritual existence in the afterlife? Is there some deeper purpose for having bodies, some, some goal? See, we need to ask some of these fundamental questions, and it gets to the, 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 some of the heart of how we are created and how we're made. We have to ask questions like, what are we supposed to do with our bodies? Whose body is it? Who gets to set the course of events in our lives in these ways? And so when we ask these questions, friends, it's just scratching the surface on a very complex topic. But when it comes to understanding our physical selves, we need to seek a biblical perspective on embodiment and gain a greater clarity on the glorious reality that we've been created in the image of God with bodies that are designed to glorify him. There's a, a theologian named Greg Allison. He recently wrote a book on embodiment. I recommend it to you and the information's in your notes there. He says it this way, and you'll see it on the screen here. He says, embodiment is the proper state of human existence. God's design for his image bearers is that we are embodied people. And yet, our culture would twist and has a deficient view of what it means to have a body. Here's a couple of the ways that, that, that maybe we see this playing out. We'll often elevate too high our bodily existence, seeking pleasure or experiences or idolizing health and wellness or making body image a marker of success or adopting a it's my body, I'll do what I want kind of attitude, elevating it too high. Or some, we neglect our bodies not taking care of our physical health or treating our bodies as merely a, a housing for our soul or maybe a, a, a taking on an attitude of it's all going to burn anyway, what does it matter? Or some denigrate our bodies, treating them as matter to be manipulated, surgically altered or abused or treated as a blank canvas for self-expression rather than a holy temple to be stewarded for God's glory. See, I, I think we need to think carefully about this, and we're going to look at what the scriptures say about embodiment today, because one of the unique aspects of what it means to, to be human is that we are a unity of body and soul. We have a material part and we have an immaterial part that are united together as one. And so if I was to ask you this question, which is more important, the body or the soul, what would you say? Would you really pick one over the other? Would you really say that one can be separated from the other? There's a theologian named Carl Truman. 
who wrote about that very question. And this is what he says about it. He says, our bodies are an integral part of who we are. He says, I do not occupy my body like I occupy a house or a spacesuit or like a deck chair at the beach. He says, on the contrary, it is an integral part of me, inseparable from who I am. What it means to be human is to be embodied. So you're not designed primarily as a soul who happens to have a body for a while. Rather, having a body is integral to what it means to be human. I like to say it this way. You are an ensouled body and an embodied soul. That unity is what it means, and this is the way God made us, and he did it on purpose. So this is why we need to think deeply about our bodily existence. We need to consider that, that we need to bring our bodies under the lordship of Jesus Christ, knowing that we're whole people, and that through the gospel, there is hope for our bodies as well, as our souls. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Let's take a few minutes to uh, up front to trace out what I'm going to call a, a biblical theology of embodiment. So look across the scriptures from beginning to end and talk about the importance of being embodied as an image bearer of God. And then we're going to look at a specific situation in the church in Corinth where the Apostle Paul applies a theology of embodiment to a misunderstanding of the gospel that was happening in the early church. Okay, so that's the two things we're going to do. Theology of embodiment, then a, a sort of a case study. In, in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. So let's jump right in. Biblical theology of embodiment. Okay, let's go to see what the scriptures say about our embodied existence. Um, I'm going to kind of move fast here. So let's, let's go back to the beginnings of our Bible and go right to the first chapter of Genesis. We're going to look at the opening chapter and just uh, point out a couple important things, and then we'll move along and, and see how the scriptures describe our embodiment. Okay, I'm going to walk you through a couple principles as we see this unfold across the scriptures. The first thing that we need to grasp is that embodiment, as male and female, was created to be very good. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and then verse 31. Now, if you're in your Bibles here in chapter 1, if you look at verses 26 and 27, they describe how we're made in the image of God, male and female. And Adam and Eve are created as material beings who also have a spiritual nature. They're embodied people with a special design, a special relationship to God, and a special job to do. And as the Genesis account unfolds, a few critical truths stick out about what it means to be an embodied person who bears God's image. Here's the first thing that sticks out. Humanity is relational on purpose. Humanity is relational on purpose. We need each other. We're made male and female, complementary, designed to work together to steward God's creation. Okay, that's the first one. The second one is that humanity is embodied on purpose. And we have limits because of this embodiment. We need to rest. We need to eat. We can't do everything. And in fact, God sets boundaries and created us with limits as creatures for our thriving. Even think about the command he gave in Genesis 2 to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's an opportunity to trust God, a boundary set up for us to grasp what it means to live under his sovereign direction and will. 
we have limits with our bodied selves. Okay, the third thing to point out is that our maleness and femaleness is connected to our bodies. There's a, a Christian apologist named Sam Alberry, and he writes this about this truth. He says, being embodied is a fundamental part of what makes us human. You cannot be fully you without a body. You cannot be fully you without your body. He says, it's a gift. He says, it is your calling. And yet, the culture that we live in would like to separate your body from your gender and give you the power to change that reality, to change that God-ordained design. Our culture would like to obliterate the beautiful difference between male and female, making this a social construct, something that we get to decide, something that we get to, to write the story of instead of a deeper eternal reality. But I want to be so clear, friends. Here's the, the biblical message is so clear. You are made male or female by God's good design and purpose and plan. And yet, sometimes our, what our culture is trying to do is to cause us to challenge that or to question that reality. Or, or maybe to, to, to sometimes doubt God's purpose in making us the way that we are with this particular body. Just this last week, um, one, of my, one of my daughters came up to me with tears in her eyes and she said, Daddy, did you wish that you had boys instead of girls? I got down on one knee and I looked her straight in the eye. And I said, oh, sweetheart, I could never wish that you were someone different. Do you know who made you a girl? God did. And he loves us. He doesn't do things on accident. And I'm so happy that you're a girl. I wouldn't want it any other way. Now, she wasn't telling me she wanted to be a boy. She was just wondering if I was disappointed that she was a girl. How could I be? You see, friends, fundamental to her existence, just like yours and mine, fundamental to her existence is the fact that God made her created her, designed her, fashioned her. Fundamental to her existence is her womanhood. Anything different wouldn't be authenticity. It would be falsity. It would be living a lie. It would be telling God he doesn't know what he's doing. Friends, we live in such a broken world with our understanding of these things, of our embodied existence, and because it is warped by the curse of sin. This is the second thing we have to grasp, okay? Our embodiment as male and female is created to be very good, but our embodiment is cursed because of sin. This is in Genesis chapter 3, and then also in Romans 8, we see these truths drawn out of the scriptures. So in Genesis 3, during the curse, it describes the curse in very physical terms. Pain, toil, strife, sweat, dust. It's all bodily realities. 
And then if you, if you were to skip ahead to Romans 8, and we're not gonna, we don't have time to read this passage, but in Romans 8, Paul describes the groaning of creation and the brokenness and decay of our bodies, and many of us know exactly what that feels like. That some of us have illnesses or disease or the failures of our bodies. Some of us have shame or body image issues. Some of us have experienced abuse physically or been treated in ways with contempt or neglect. Or some of us struggle with temptation or chafing against the limitations of our bodies. In so many ways, friends, sin has affected our bodies and therefore our souls. But there's hope, okay? The next chapter of what's written in the story of Scripture is that embodiment is affirmed and redeemed by Jesus. John 1, 14 and 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 teach us this truth. Okay, listen to these. I want to just listen to these earth-shattering words from John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you realize what John is communicating here? The eternal, almighty, sovereign God took on human nature. The fullness of what it means to be human. He came into the material realm, not in a merely spiritual sense, but with skin and bones and flesh and blood. Friends, Jesus had to sleep. He had to eat. He had to go to the bathroom. He laughed. He cried. And when they cut him, he bled. He knows the limits and realities of being embodied. He was abused and mocked. He experienced physical pain. He experienced the shame being laid bare before the crowds naked on the cross. And yet, friends, this, the promise here and the truth here, is that through Jesus' incarnation, his fully human embodied nature, he was able to be our substitute and sacrifice for sin, redeeming us as whole people through the spiritual rebirth now and through the promise of the physical resurrection to come. Our salvation is a rebirth and a new creation. It's, it's all of who we are. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, if you need some devotional material for this week, read these two chapters. As Paul describes these truths that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And yet he all, this is the already reality of the gospel is that you're re, reborn in your spirit. But the not yet is that he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. I live in this earthly tent and oh, I long for the heavenly dwelling. That's the tension that we all feel. This is the heart of 
the, the message of the gospel when it comes to embodiment. But there's a future hope. And this is the last part we need to talk about. That our embodiment will be our eternal existence in the new heavens and new earth. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection and the spiritual physical bodies that we will have in glory. And then Revelation chapters 20 and 22 describe this. See, friends, if we trust in Christ for salvation, our bodies will be raised in power to be like Christ's body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And then we will live eternally in a bodily existence on the new earth. Now, that we've, okay, we've, we've done this sweeping view across scripture of the whole picture of embodiment is very good, it's cursed, it's redeemed, and then we have a future bodily reality in heaven. Now that we've seen this flow of scripture when it comes to embodiment, we need to ask this question, how are we supposed to understand this already not yet reality of our bodily existence in the church? So I want to look at a case study of a particular problem in the Corinthian church that's very similar to the problems that we face in our culture today. So grab your Bible then and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read the whole uh, passage here of verses 12 to 20. If you need a copy of the Bible, raise your hand. Love to have you see this, this example, this text for yourself as we discover what is going on in this early church context. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, let me tell you a little bit about it as we look at this study, okay? This example from Paul's letter to the church in the ancient city, ancient Roman city of Corinth, it is so applicable today because the primary problem that was going on that was facing the Corinthian church is that many of the Roman converts to Christianity thought that they could do whatever they wanted with their bodies because it wouldn't affect them spiritually, Okay, this is what was going on in the church at this time. I can do whatever I want with my body because it doesn't matter. Spiritual things are what matter. This was the thinking of these Roman believers in Corinth. Now, that's not too different from the radical autonomy and the expressive individualism of our culture. Today, we often think our bodies are this canvas, this blank canvas for self-expression. Rather than as we said before, this holy temple, we've been told that we can do whatever we like. We've, we sever the connection between the physical and the spiritual realm, thinking that the things that we do with our bodies don't affect our soul. But disconnecting these two parts of what it means to be human is honestly, it's one of the grounds for moral relativism. Once outward actions, they, they'll lose their moral constraints when it's merely the pleasures of highly evolved animals rather than some deeper design of God. So listen to the situation. Here's what was going on in Corinth at the time, all right? So in, in, as Paul addresses this view of their bodies, he specifically talks about how it relates to human sexuality, and an issue that's also at the forefront of our culture. So listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 
By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitutes? Never! Do you not know that he unites himself with the prostitute as one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from, from sexual immorality. All, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, we need to understand a little bit more about the context of Roman culture at this time. So let me tell you about two things more specifically that were happening. Okay, the Romans had kind of normalized the gratification of desire and even encouraged people to sort of go and do whatever they wanted around town. I mean, it was real bad scenario in terms of the sort of limits that they placed around especially their sexuality. Now, there's also some evidence of uh, prostitution that was in the temples of the Roman gods. And so it was related to their worship as well. Now, this was a culture where limiting uh, desire, limiting these, these, these acts to marriage was a radical thing, just like our culture today. Now, the other thing that they faced that Paul addresses is their relation to food, which is a problem in our culture as well. Okay, they had this propensity or this, this culture, this radical indulgence of food in the Roman world. Now, we know this from um, some things that have been discovered. So one of the Roman love of food is reflected in some cookbooks that have been discovered from antiquity. There was an example of a, a, a man named Apicacus who wrote a cookbook with, rep, with recipes that were like this. Um, Numidian chicken. I don't know what that is, but Numidian chicken. There you go. Rabbit with fruit sauce. Anybody would try rabbit with fruit sauce? How about liver sausage? This is my favorite one. Anchovy delight without the anchovies. That was literally a recipe in this cookbook. They also had sweet and sour pork. Friends, not too different from today. Let's be honest. Food in the Roman world, could be an indulgence and a vice. So here's how Paul goes after this problem, okay? First thing he does is he uses their own slogans against them. This is starting in verse 12, all right? If you look at your text, verses 12 and 13 were likely popular slogans among the Corinthian Christians. This is why they're in quotations in your Bible. So Paul is turning their argument of what they would say on its head. He's questioning, as you see the text there, they used to say, I have the right to do anything. He says, but not everything's beneficial. What he's doing is he's, the question he's posing, he's saying it's not whether something is permissible. That's not really the point. It's about whether something is good, it's beneficial. In other words, Christians cannot merely think about what's allowable, we need to think about what is good and right. See, they had the wrong idea about freedom. 
There's two key words in these opening verses, and, and I want to just draw your attention to them. The first one is the words right, or some of your Bibles say lawful. It's, I have the right to do whatever I want, or right? it's lawful for me to do whatever I want. The other one is the word mastered later on in the next verse, or dominated, as some of your Bibles say. Both of these words come from the same root word that refers to the power and authority to exercise your will. It's often used for governors or magistrates as they have authority over their dominion. In other words, what Paul is doing here is a play on words. He's saying something like this. If you claim that you have the authority to do whatever you want, that's within your power. Be careful. Because what you choose to do can gain authority or power over you. The very actions you think that you're free to do because they're allowable can turn around and enslave you. And he's saying that freedom to do whatever you want can become your master. And you'll find yourself enslaved to sin. This is why Paul goes on in this paragraph to so bluntly talk about how the unconscionable thought that a Christian would visit a brothel down at the local Roman temple because they thought that what they did with their body didn't affect them spiritually. He's saying, what in the world? How can you think that way? You see, the same logic pervades things in our day and in our culture. We think, if I do this action, it won't affect that person I love. It won't affect me. It won't cause me harm. We're told that there are, you know, drugs are recreational. Go for it. Drinking can help you cope. We, we think that, that consuming endless hours of entertainment won't affect us in some way spiritually. That we can do what we want with our bodies, because there are bodies after all. What Paul points out here is something so critical that we need to grasp. Especially in our culture where we have this twisted and self-serving notion of what it means to have a body. And this is the truth we need, dear friends. In the gospel, your body now belongs to the Lord. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And friends, a temple is a holy place. If you, in other words, if you allow your body to be devoted to some other source of satisfaction or fulfillment, Paul says you will find yourself enslaved to it and polluted by it in your soul. There's a connection between these things, your body and your soul. Rather, friends, what the world needs to see from the church, and I think maybe mostly what we need is a conversation to get started about this more so than maybe me providing a, all the solutions. It's what the world needs to see as a living witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ is a church family who understands that the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling within us. That how we live bodily today can be radically different from the world around us. That we need to reconnect the reality that we're whole people, body and soul, who are, as Paul says, bought at a price. And that we need to honor God with our bodies. Or as Paul writes elsewhere in Romans 12, verse 1, 
He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See, in this way, even as we wait in these earthly tents that cry out for final redemption, we can live in ways that point ahead to that future hope of the resurrection. We can say that my body belongs to the Lord. It's not mine. It's dedicated to him, a temple of his very presence. And to see God sanctify us, body and soul. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, as we start to wrap our minds around these realities, oh, there are so many ways that this intersects with, with our culture, the way that we um, swim in this world that we're living in and, and, and the twisted ways that our culture understands our bodies. Lord, bring great clarity to us from your word of what it means to be your image bearers, beloved, are being men and women created very good, that even in the curse of sin that we see the redemption that you're doing in us, in the spiritual rebirth and in the future hope of the resurrection, that our whole selves come under your lordship. Convict us of ways that we've either elevated too much our bodies, making too much of what it means to have an image of, of ourselves projected out into the world or whatever it is, or the fact that we've convict us if we've neglected our bodies, Lord. Help us to understand that we can live and see the sanctification of your Holy Spirit in us as a whole person, beloved by God, with a future hope of being face-to-face -face with you in the new heavens and new earth. In Jesus' name, amen.